Well, as many of you know, I'm not a Baptist anymore, uh, much to the chagrin of my dad. Uh, I've been an Anglican now for a little bit over two years. Uh, I love the tradition, the form of worship, uh, taking communion every Sunday. It's just something that really I just gravitated to uh, in my Christianity. Uh, But many of you wonder if I still am a Christian. I know my mom does. Uh, Every now and then she'll just like get a weird look on her face and say something like, do you pray to Mary? No, I don't pray to Mary. I really respect the lady, but I don't pray to her. Uh, and I think your answer to that... We respect her, too. And good. I'm glad you respect Mary. She's a, she's a great gal. Uh, but I think your answer to the fact that I'm a Christian is found in uh, the reality that my dad has let me come up here behind the pulpit today. Uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that my dad and my family have encouraged me uh, in my walk through Anglicanism and to it. Uh, And we are definitely aware that we are on the same team. Theologically, we both believe the same things, even though my mom has told us that we're not allowed to talk theology at the dinner table because we end up fighting. Uh, But I stand here before you as a brother in Christ, and I want to see Christ lifted up in all that I do, and I know that you guys too. And so we stand uh, as brothers and sisters. However, I can't stop being an Anglican today. So in honor of that, we are going to celebrate Christmas uh, in fact, I think Chris, Christians should celebrate Christmas for at least two Sundays. Uh, many of you know that the 12 days of Christmas, it starts on December 25th, and it ends January 6th, which is the day that we celebrate the baptism of Jesus, which kind of marks the beginning of his ministry. So the church calendar kind of takes you through the life of Christ, which is what I follow as an Anglican. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, our text for the day is going to be coming out of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, And if you have the ESV, it's on a page 1002, at least in my Bible. And at first glance, it won't really strike us as a Christmas passage, uh, but I hope one thing I'll be able to do this morning is communicate why it is a Christmas passage. And I think it talks about the reason why Christ came to the earth and one of the purposes that he accomplished in coming to earth, uh, which is namely his suffering. Uh, Christmas is no doubt a time of joy, but it's also a time where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so uh, before we read the passage, I do want to try one more thing because I am Anglican. Uh, After I finish reading the passage, I'm going to say the words, the word of the Lord, to which all of you will respond to me, thanks be to God. I don't think I have to convince you that this is a good practice. But uh, for the sake of practice, let's try before I read the passage. Uh, The word of the Lord. Ah, beautiful. Okay, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in, the flesh, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Even now, Lord Jesus, even now speak to us. Your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So why did Jesus become human? As Christians, I think this is a foundational question that we must ask ourselves. Foundational because it is uh, kind of the, the starting point of our worldview as Christians. And if we can't uphold a worldview as Christians, then we can't hold anything uh, in reality in, in the secular world. And so that, that's one of the, the, the questions that I hope to answer this morning. Uh, first, I think that you have to start, if you're going to talk about the incarnation, you have to begin with creation. We all believe that Christ was the firstborn of creation, meaning that not only did Jesus begin or exist prior to creation, but also that he participated in the act of creating. So theologically speaking, when we, when we talk about the incarnation, we must begin with creation. And I think this is plain to see from the beginning of the Gospel of John, where he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this obviously echoes back to Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase, in the beginning, are the same they, they, they parallel each other. And I think it's obvious that the, the author of Hebrews is also harking back to creation when he says uh, in verse 10 that is, Jesus is for whom and by whom all things exist. The incarnation starts at creation. And this creation God made good. In the Garden of Eden, all is right. Man, creation, and God all live in perfect communion with each other. And though this, this, this Garden of Eden kind of seems like a fairy tale to us at this point in, in our world, man, creation, and God don't live in perfect harmony anymore. Uh, the, the accord between us has been broken. Creation has been marred. Destruction, not harmony, rules. Selfishness and sin, not peace and goodwill, rules. The earth shakes and kills hundreds of people without any warning. The ocean creates a tsunami that, tsunami that kills thousands along the coast. The weather produces tornadoes and hurricanes that tear the foundations off their, their houses, their, the houses off their foundations. And we as humanity do not live in peace anymore either. We drop bombs and conduct warfare. Man kills man as Cain killed Abel. Out of pure sinfulness, we live for ourselves. What God created in Genesis 1 is not the crea same creation that we see today. Something has changed. Whereas in the garden, man was in direct communion with God, today we are in direct communion with Facebook and our iPhones. God has found at our fingertips. The God of the Bible is much bigger than our fingertips. We worship things created rather than the creator of things. And you see, the problem is that humanity quit listening to the word of God when they heard the whispers of the serpent. The word of God produced life, but the word of the serpent produced death. 
And as a result, we cannot hear the word of God any longer. Now, this does not mean that the word of God went silent. It just, it just means that his voice was muted by the sounds of sin and evil. And this, this kind of begs the question, uh, if God is muted by our sin, how are we to hear him? And I think the answer is, is plain to see. It's, it's in creation. We can discover a lot of things about God through careful study of science, philosophy, and even the world. And I think we can learn much about God just by spending some time in creation. One of my favorite places to kill time is, is out in creation, primarily with the mountain and beaches. I just think they're breathtaking. Uh, and specifically, uh, the times of the day that I really appreciate are sunrise and sunset. I think the sunrise is beautiful as it, as it harkens or, or announces the dawn of a new day. And then the sunset, especially over the beach, how it, how it paints uh, a picture on the ocean and also on the sky, uh, it's just it's absolutely beautiful. But I've also s- discovered that if I spend too much time around these beautiful things, uh, their beauty seems to fade away. I'm not, I'm not as enamored with them as I used to be. It loses its glimmer and becomes dull to my eyes. And uh, this doesn't mean that the sunset and sunrise are less beautiful than they were before. It just means that my senses have outgrown what used to give them delight. And I really like what G.K. Chesterton Chesterton says about this phenomenon. And if you haven't read anything by G.K. Chesterton, I highly recommend it. He's, uh, he lived around the time of C.S. Lewis, and uh, just an incredible author, really was able to communicate a lot of things. But I want to read something uh, that he wrote out of the book called Orthodoxy. And he kind of commutes something about God, specifically within the context of childhood versus adulthood. So if you listen to these words by G.K. Chesterton. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned, have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. All of creation points to God. It reflects his beauty, his power, his faithfulness, and maybe even his infancy. God never tires of seeing all of creation put on a symphony dedicated to his name. But we as rational human beings have become tired of the monotony. We have outgrown our sense for creation. We've moved beyond the creator to worship the material world around us. Romans 1, 18 through 21 really speaks to the plight of the human condition that we see today. It says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And with our foolish hearts, we could not see God the creator. We began to worship the created things instead of the creator of things. Humanity and all of creation is in need of the veil darkening our eyes to be lifted. So that we can see beyond the visible created world to behold the beauty of the God who stands behind it all. The word that spoke it all into existence has now become a faint whisper, barely recognizable. And that's the problem with where we are today. We can't see God through creation because we can't hear him as a result of the sin. We've lost the path that led to God. If God were to leave us to our own devices, we would surely fall miserably short of finding him. Creation has been marred beyond recognition, and we have been marred beyond recognition from who we used to be in the Garden of Eden. However, because we, don't wor- because we worship a God who is not distant from creation, he sought to renew it by making the in- un- invisible and unheard word visible and heard. The very same word, the word that brought forth creation is the same word prom- that he promised to renew it with. And this word took on human flesh so that humanity could see with their eyes and hear with their ears that God was not, in fact, silent. That the Creator had not abandoned us to our own devices, but rather that he would guide us back into communion with God by being made known in human form, perfect human form. The hidden God is now the revealed God in Jesus. And it was humanity's sorry case that led the word to come down and dwell among us. God saw our sinfulness and did not abandon us. Rather, he saw it most pertinent to save us. And he did so by appearing before us in an image that we could understand. Remember Romans 1. God was clearly shown to us in creation, but we still couldn't see him. We still couldn't hear him. We were blind to the God who created and worshipped creation. God's word was muted. But now God appears to us in human form. But not only in human human form does God appear. Here stands God, the true God, becoming truly human. 100% God, 100% man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, meaning that you cannot separate Jesus from his divinity and you cannot separate Jesus from his humanity. He is both truly God, truly man. And 2,000 years ago, in a feeding trough in the town of Bethlehem, a baby was born. But this baby was no ordinary baby. Anybody walking by that night might have heard the cries coming from that stable and thought, Here is a child of no noble birth, a child destined for poverty, where he's not going anywhere. But in reality, the cries coming from that stable 
we're breaking the silence of the word of God in creation. The little cries of that baby were the same cries that brought all of creation into being. And there he laid helpless. In all humility, he took on human form. In all humility, he became a servant for humanity. And he did so because we were in dire need of it. Without the incarnation, we would be stuck worshiping creation instead of the creator. But you might ask, wasn't there an easier way? The incarnation was not an easy way for God to save all of humanity. Why did he have to make it so difficult on himself? What, Kyle, there definitely is an easy way, right? Well, the answer is yes and no. I guess Jesus could have done it another way. However, the reason why it is not so is because of the sinfulness of man, the fall of man that we've already been over. Since God created the earth and all that is, including humanity, creation was meant to be in perfect communion with God. Peace was meant to reign, not war, love, not hate. The chasm of creation separating God and us was too great for us to cross on our own. The way in which he would close the gap is by forging a new path to salvation, by closing the gap himself. Jesus was sent to become the founder of that new path. And if you look at verse 10, you see the word founder. And in the original language, it literally means pathfinder or trailblazer. The image being that Jesus came to the earth to forge a new path or a new trail to salvation, to God Jesus is the great trailblazer, if you would, of Christianity. Humanity is called to follow this new trail that Jesus set forth in his creation. But not only so, if if Jesus is going to forge a new path to heaven, he must be able to intercede to God on our behalf. The gap still exists, but the gap is brought brought to a close by his suffering. The sacrifice of Jesus is the same as the way in which the gap between God and us would be closed. And that's the mystery of the incarnation. But maybe the word mystery is not quite the right word. Mystery connotes an idea of unknowability. But Jesus took on flesh. He is knowable. And so maybe the right word is the riddle. Maybe it's the the riddle of the, of the incarnation that we need to discuss because the word of creation has been made known to us and we just can't put together the pieces. It still is hazy. It doesn't make sense, but we know the word. So I think I like that, the riddle of the incarnation. But that brings us to the, the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus became man so that he could become our high priest. The book of Hebrews explores this idea of high priest uh, pretty exhaustively. From start to finish, it is concerned with Jesus taking his ultimate place as high priest, who not only prays for us, but also acts as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And lucky for you, we are not going through the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, We don't have time, and I really do not want to prepare for something that exhaustive. But I do want to focus on the idea presented to us in this passage. And the idea of this passage is that Jesus suffers. We all know the song, Holy Night. It's such a peaceful song, isn't it? It makes Jesus' birth seem as if Mary felt no pain in childbirth. 
And, and it was like she gave birth in a hospital with the strongest medications and the best doctors. And now I'm no expert on childbirth for more than one reason, but I can imagine that giving birth to a baby is anything but calm and silent. If anything, I picture lots of screaming and stress and pain, and all the movies paint it to be this way. Uh, it's a pretty rough experience, pretty much the opposite of, uh, of silent and calm. And I think even looking at children after they're born, uh, it, it shows that it wasn't a very easy uh, experience for the child. Uh, they never look completely human. I mean, nothing against newborn babies. They're beautiful in their own way. But, you know, it, take, it takes a couple weeks for the head to quit looking like an alien head. Uh, and so I think we have done a little bit of a disservice uh, to the birth of Jesus through our idealized depictions of that holy night. Was it holy? Absolutely. But was it a night where pain and suffering were suspended? No. Not only did Mary experience intense pain, but it wasn't the best experience for Jesus either. So the song, Holy Night, while it is a great song to sing during Christmas, uh, it's probably pretty far from the truth as to what actually happened in that night in Bethlehem. But it was by his suffering that Jesus was perfected, or at least that's what it tells us in verse 10. Uh, and this, this is a strange phrase. We all know that Jesus was perfect. Uh, he can't be made more perfect. Otherwise, that would imply that he was something less than perfect. So what does this mean? Uh, I think it means that his suffering allowed Jesus to become our high priest. The ability to suffer, and I'm using the word ability carefully here, his ability to suffer acts as an augment to his character with which he is able to become more like us. And it is through his suffering that Jesus sanctifies us. His ability to suffer is the same thing which unifies us to him most, and vice versa, he is unified to us in his suffering. We suffer and experience pain, he suffers and experiences pain. And because we are united to Jesus in this, He's able to call us brothers and sisters. I'm not able to call a dog my brother or sister, although with Trevor I'm not really sure it's iffy. But I'm not able to call a dog my brother and sister because a dog does not share in the same likeness as me. We are different. We have different experiences. And so, likewise, the very Son of God is God. He must become human in order for him to be able to call us uh, brothers and sisters, in order that God the Father can adopt us into the kingdom of God and we can partake in the joys of the kingdom of heaven with, with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And this brings us back to the purpose of the incarnation. God did not see it fit that he would let us stay separated from him in sin. Rather, he sent Jesus to become sin and to act as that perfect sacrifice to take it away. The incarnation is a beautiful truth because it points forward to his death and resurrection and ultimately to our salvation. The same God who spoke life into being is the same God who will speak life into you, who will speak life into me. And his victory over the grave is not only a victory for himself, it is also our victory.
We stand in Christ victorious over sin and death. Jesus was born so that death may die. Death is swallowed up in his victory. And when Christ walked up the trail to Mount Golgotha, the people who were witnessing that event thought Jesus was on a path towards death. But little did they know that this path towards death eventually became the path towards life. Every day we are called up to walk the trail to Golgotha so that we may die to ourselves and live paradoxically to Christ. In Jesus' resurrection, death met its end. And death now no, has no uh, reign on us as Christians in the same way that he had no reign on Jesus. His power is greater than death, and his power is for us. And as one of my favorite hymns tells us, No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. All because he first took on flesh. Yet, we are still afraid to die. Death still fears us. The sufferings and temptations that we daily experience still weigh us down. And especially this time of the year. The holidays always remind us of things that we wish were different. We stand in a strange place in human history. We as Christians stand in the power of Christ, knowing that he has conquered sin and death. But we also stand in a fallen world, awaiting his return, so that sin and death will be fully vanquished. We are already redeemed, but we are still waiting for full redemption in Christ's second coming. But as we wait for his second coming, we still deal with these sufferings and temptations of being human. Oftentimes, these sufferings and temptations are beyond our control. Uh, but I want to remind you, which I think this text reminds us, that because Jesus became man, because he took on flesh and experienced being human, we worship a God who understands and sympathizes with our trials and sufferings. He not only knows what you're going through, he has been what you're going through. Some of you this holiday season may be unemployed or underemployed. It's wearing on you, especially as you're trying to provide for your family and buy gifts for them. But I want to remind you that Jesus was a homeless man. He never had much in the way of possessions or money. But he and you will both inherit the kingdom of heaven. Some of you may be reminded of being single and loneliness, but you also may be reminded of your loneliness in your marriage, too. Uh, I'm not blind to the fact that some marriages can feel lonely. Well, Jesus never married. He lived a single life. And he found fulfillment not in the things of the world or in relationships, but in a relationship of a different world, in a relationship with God the Father. Nonetheless, Jesus understands your pain. Some of you may be experiencing a broken friendship, a betrayal. Well, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter, one of his best friends. He understands the hardships. And for some of you, 
the holidays may be a grim reminder of, of a loved one who has passed away. The joy of yesteryear isn't as joyful without the person here with you this holiday. But I want to remind you that Jesus wept over his friend's death in Lazarus. He experienced the agony of the family who experienced the death of Jairus' little girl. But not only that, God the Father experienced the death of his son, Jesus. He knows your hardships. Some of you may be sick, have chronic pain, or just growing weary with age. Jesus sympathizes with you. He experienced the death of the cross. He experienced the suffering that came before the death on the cross, an absolute agonizing way to go. Our God knows pain and suffering all too well. But this is the glory of the incarnation. We don't worship an absent God. We worship a God who is with us, who has been through our trials and temptations, and who helps us get through them. It's not always easy. In fact, it's never easy until his second coming. But our God is Emmanuel, and that's who we worship. He is with us. Amen.